Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 236, part one of a new series on conditioning. In this episode, we're going to compare and contrast the physiology and adaptations generated by resistance training and cardio to see where they overlap and where they differ. In this series, we hope to answer the question, do you really need to do cardio? And if so, how should we go about doing it? This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. I'm joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. You've heard his dad noises. Now you're seeing his face. What's going on, man? (laughs) Oh, these are all going on YouTube now? Is that the thing? The tubes. I I do it for the algorithm. I don't do it for my personal enjoyment of editing hour-long talking head stuff. But uh, Do what you got to do, man. I understand. You got to play the game. I got to play the game. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not handsome and I'm not interesting. So we just have to overwhelm the people with the content. If you just, you know, notice, look at the little mic thing. You see it? You see how oh, pro that is? Wow. Well done. Well, just, uh, I've never <laughs> seen anything with my logo on it. That I haven't liked. So, <laughs> uh, in any case, yeah. Uh, we were just talking about this off air. I just got back from grand Cayman of the Cayman islands. If you're wondering that's somewhere in the Caribbean, I couldn't point to it on a map, but I know, thereabouts is where it is and it's approximately three and a half hours by airplane from charlotte assuming that's due south now let me let me tell you this if, if you weren't aware of what the temperature or climate is like in the summer months uh in in grand cayman it's hot uh 90 degrees every single day 100 plus heat index i mean originally when i thought about a powerlifting meet in grand cayman i was like oh my gosh finally i get to go somewhere awesome for a powerlifting meet uh, well, it makes more sense as to why they schedule the meet there. Like otherwise it would be astronomically expensive, I assume. But, uh, also did you know, this has gotta be the first time you've ever heard this. The meet was on the second floor of the hotel. Yeah. You mentioned that last time. That's a little interesting. How do you think deadlifts went in that place? I know, I know exactly how they went because there were multiple flights. So I'd run down to get some food, uh, for example, and you'd, I mean, deafening thunderous percussive <laughs> uh, glass shattering rattling noises and that was just when the when you know some of the uh lighter weight competitors were going which are still lifting heavy weights but i'm glad i was not downstairs when mike t attempted an all-time world record for his weight class i think it was like 860 something yeah, or whatever I suspect the hotel did not know what they were getting themselves into with this <laughs> no also there was a guy a local uh came in uh lifter 
I forget his name. He was a good lifter. Uh, and I think on his third deadlift, he pulled 290 or something, 290 kilos. So it was at 630, uh, something, 628, whatever. And he gets in, he's looking around. He's like, come on, come on. And he's got full control of the barbell. It's just full, complete control of the barbell. And then he's looking around, looking around, and then he drops it. Oh, my. <laughs> and the whole crowd goes, ooh. Because if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with powerlifting rules, you, you can't actually drop the deadlift that's like one of the few rules like he just released it free fall from waist height yeah like independence day where the alien dude's got this (laughs) tentacle around the guy's neck is release me (laughs) it just drops it so that was uh yeah that was tough but uh claire did amazing she squatted 193 kilos which is 424 wow Um, yeah new new record although we only held that record for about 35 seconds because the (laughs) eventual winner she placed claire placed second the eventual winner squatted 198 kilos so four, what thirty six? Um, yeah, benched one hundred and eighteen kilos, which is not a PR, but she's coming back from a, a pretty gnarly shoulder injury. Um, one twenty one, uh, which is a uh, two hundred and sixty nine pounds. She's pushing up, pushing up, pushing up, pushing it up, and it does slow down. I'll fully admit it does slow down. The bar was still moving. I have it on video, uh, and the judges took they took it on one side. Like the bar literally wow. goes up by like That's four feet on one side. Yeah, so I went to the judge. I went to the judges. I was like, yo, that they sh- shouldn't have taken that. But it has to be apparently, and I, I just figured this out. If it's a three ju- uh, j- juror jury, it has to be unanimous for them to overturn it. And if it's a five juror jury, it just is majority. Anyway, they had three, did not get a unanimous decision, so moved on to deadlifts. <clears throat> Claire uh, pulled 223, which is uh, 491 or something like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, just a li- got a little bit away from her, and she had a slight pause about mid thigh, and they red lighted on that appropriately, so but still, it moved. That's uh, quite heavy. <laughs> can confirm is heavy. The winner she pulled two thirty kilos, which is uh, was that five oh seven, five oh eight, yeah, yeah. So you know, if, had we got the all the thirds, we would have uh, still come in second by about three kilos as it stands. I think it was a ten kilo difference. Claire did amazing. Um, all the lifters there. It was a pretty. It was a cool event. Yeah, I was glad I went. Um, the only downside, my only negative that I have to say has nothing to do with the meet, but rather I, on a whim, decided to play golf. I decided to play golf. Now, it was only a nine hole, there's only a nine hole course on the island, and you have to play it twice. About hole five, I'm out there, and I'm like, it looks like it's going to rain. Hmm. And uh, it was not just a sprinkle, a little, you know, pitter pat. This was a torrential downpour of biblical proportions, something <laughs> I have not seen in years living in California. And I'm soft. I'm California soft. I fully admit that. I also mistakenly chose a white polo, which uh, not a good sign. And I didn't have any of my golf shoes, nothing. I just went out there and kind of rented some clubs and did the thing. My shoes were so wet that as I was walking out of the cart, my shoes fell off. And so I was like, well, I'm playing barefoot. There are people coming off the course. They're like, it's all yours. And I'm like, thanks, Captain. I kept playing because I was the only one on the course. But uh, yeah, the shoes did not survive. The polo did not survive. Uh, I did play. I guess if yeah. that was the if that was the worst aspect of your experience, there are, there are worse things. So. Yeah. Last thing I'll say, it gets better slash worse depending on your perspective on things. <laughs> I uh, So I flew to Charlotte. I had like a... F- it was supposed to be a two-hour layover. ended up being like a five- or six-hour layover. And I had in my pocket my wallet, my AirPods, and my keys. 
I don't know why I put them there instead of like securing them in the bag, not securing the bag, but securing them in the bag. I don't know if I hit a black hole at some point when I passed out on the plane and they fell out of my pocket or if I took them out somewhere and left them or if somebody took them. I don't know. I did have some some cash on me. I arrived at my apartment at uh, approximately two in the morning or so uh, Monday and I had no wallet. I had no oh, keys. No. I had no AirPods. And so that may be the actual. Yeah, the, that part the, sucks. <laughs> yeah, can confirm. Not great. But other, other than that, <laughs> great, great trip. Okay. So, uh, yeah, congrats to Claire and all the competitors. A really good event put on by North American Powerlifting Federation, a subsidiary of the IPF. That was cool. And, uh, yeah, now we're back. Uh, I assume nothing remarkable happened to you over the last week. Uh, no, just kept carrying on in the hospital. I'm on my last couple days of this, uh, this block in the hospital. And then this weekend I'm going to fly out to visit my, my sister. So that's going to be a good trip out to Hawaii. Yeah. Well, I, is it not on fire? That's one of the islands. Yes. Yeah. I, I understand how geography to. works. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> okay. From my understanding, enough. I'll be okay. All right. Well, there you go. Safe, safe travels. Uh, although you have no control over the safety, but you know, seems like something people say. Uh, before we pop into this week's podcast, just a few announcements. Again, we do have our super seminar coming up in Los Angeles. This thing's selling quickly. I assume that will be sold out uh, fairly sh- soon, just given the rate at which, since we announced it, it was a super seminar. So it combined the first time we've ever done it, a combination of our health and performance seminar and our pain and rehab seminar. It's all smushed together uh, with some new content, uh, fresh faces and whatnot. So you get some lifting, you get some info, you get to ask questions, interact with the barbell medicine crew. Thing is uh, going quickly. So yeah, that is up uh, for sale, but again, going quickly. So check that out. It's linked in the description below. Also, our traditional health and performance seminar at an Untamed Strength in October is still available. Uh, again, we always get a pretty much sold out crowd there as well. So if you're in the state of California, we are uh, doubling down on barbell medicine in California. So check that out uh, this fall. And then if you're in Australia, uh, we're going to be there. At, we'll be in Sydney and Perth in January. Now, somebody said in our group, they're like, oh, no, Brisbane. I no, no offense to anyone who lives in Bris Vegas, Brisbane, Queensland. I, I'm not going back. I just, I'm not. I'm just not going back. We're not going back. And it's no offense to anybody who lives there, but I'm just telling you straight up, like, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Uh, so, but you know, that'll be the closest that barbell medicine will be to you. <laughs> <laughs> because we'll be on your in your continent in any case so yeah if you're in uh, the southern pacific you want to hang out with barbell medicine come to one of our seminars it's a full seminar so you get some again some coaching some lifting some information uh fun weekend check that out uh, two dates available for you and last but not least all of our supplements are restocked so the peri rx both the caffeinated version and the one without caffeine new formulation um all the evidence-based ingredients third-party tested make sure it's pure it's free of contaminants which we can't say for all the other supplements on the market so that is available also our whey rx we both uh so that's our whey protein it's 90 calories per serving 20 grams of protein it's whey protein isolate nothing added to it again third third party tested each batch both the vanilla and chocolate flavors are in stock <sighs> all right you know what we're gonna talk about cardio and you kind of goaded me into doing this because you're like we, we just don't have enough information out on conditioning and so invariably we're either referring people away or answering repetitive questions that basically indicates we need material on this so 
the way I suspect this is going to go, it's going to be a three-part series. Uh, we'll talk about kind of some definition, some background info on this particular one. Um, we'll talk about uh, the interference effect. So, you know, what happens when you combine lifting and cardio together, kind of assage those concerns, talk about what happens and uh, end up with some dosing, talk about all the zones, everything else in part three. And there might be a fourth part where it's kind of like a either Mythbusters or I don't know, something like that. We'll see what happens. So, but I'm thinking three-part series and then there'll be some articles and probably some downloads on like, hey, a conditioning focus program that, you know, try this out. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that's my tentative plan. All right, first up, let's talk about some definitions here. And uh, Austin, I know you love definitions because you are the most pedantic. You're the most <laughs> pedantic doctor in North America, second most handsome. Uh, we'll see what you have to think about these. Dep- now, depends on the topic. <laughs> yeah, right. Fair <laughs> you enough. have to balance being a pedant, I think, would be the term versus uh, caring. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's fair. Uh, so first up, we're going to define what is physical activity. We'll talk about what is exercise, what's training, what is cardiorespiratory fitness, what is conditioning, and what is resistance training, just so everybody has a, you know, a good understanding of what we're talking about when we use these terms. So first up, physical activity is defined as movement of the body created by the muscles that increases energy use above resting levels. Exercise or exercise training is a subset of physical activity that is planned, repetitive, and structured to improve or maintain health or fitness, whereas non-exercise activity refers to activities of daily life, occupation, and involuntary spontaneous movements like fidgeting and twitching. And just as an aside, people talk about non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is called NEAT. And some people are like, oh, yeah, if you just, if you just walk more, you can increase your energy expenditure due to this non-exercise activity. But as far as I know, and as best as I can define it, walking is like planned, repetitive, structured movement that's goal-directed, which... Typically volitional outside the context of sleepwalking. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we would just call that exercise. And, you know, being the pedance that we are, (laughs) I I can't call walking neat, even though, you know, it's good activity. Okay. So that's physical activity, whereas exercise and training are sometimes said to be separate pursuits with training being the process of preparing an athlete for performance and exercise being a structured physical activity. Uh, I find this distinction to be arbitrary, elitist, and confusing considering that there are many individuals who do not compete in any organized sport, but who do prioritize improvements in physical performance. So are they training or exercising even though they don't sign up for a meet or a competition? It's made up uh yeah, many of the, kind of a silly distinction that lets people kind of pound their chests and feel better about themselves <laughs> oh, i'm training yeah okay and you know what's more is that many of the health benefits associated with exercise are also associated with improvements in performance so things like muscular strength muscular size cardiorespiratory endurance all of those things track well with health trajectory but they're all really performances if you distill it down Finally, some types of exercise are referred to as training in the scientific literature, such as resistance training, interval training, things of that nature. Thus, we'll use the terms exercise and training interchangeably to discuss the many components of exercise programming in this podcast series and beyond. Next, cardiorespiratory fitness, also sometimes known as cardio, is defined as the capacity of the heart, lungs, and circulatory system, which is a fancy way of saying blood vessels, to support energy production during physical activity and exercise. Increases in cardiorespiratory fitness improve the delivery of oxygen and energy, the removal of waste products, and other related processes to maintain muscular force production during sustained, submaximal, usually, efforts. There are many different ways to measure cardiorespiratory fitness. So things like VO2 max, that's maximal oxygen uptake, peak oxygen uptake, which is called VO2 
peak. Uh, there's also direct functional testing, such as a six or 12 minute walk or run tests. Also like the 20 meter shuttle run test is another way to like determine cardiorespiratory fitness levels. Uh, in any case, a growing body of data has demonstrated that fitness levels powerfully predicts the risk of adverse events across the spectrum of health and disease. In many studies, fitness has been shown to outperform the traditional risk factors in terms of health outcomes. We're going to talk about VO2 max a bunch on this podcast series, so I think it bears a discussion of what it is. So VO2 max is the gold standard for uh, measuring cardiorespiratory fitness. It's defined as the maximal oxygen intake when activating large muscle groups at maximal intensity during exercise, typically measured during running on like a treadmill or walking on an elevated surface at a uh, particular rate of speed, or it can be done with a cycle ergometer, which is a fancy medical way of saying bicycle. Uh, <laughs> VO2 max is an indicator of the body's ability to deliver oxygen to active muscle tissue. It's ideally measured via a conditioning exercise to exhaustion, uh, while oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production are directly measured by a face mask. So you wear this face mask, it's hooked up to a metabolic cart, and it analyzes how much oxygen you're taking in and how much carbon dioxide you're putting out. A typical protocol for testing someone's VO2 max would include a five-minute warm-up on whatever modality that you're using, then a the workload, the initial sort of entry point is set at 50 watts, which you can adjust via the incline on a treadmill, the speed, same thing on the cycle, except for you're not inclining the cycle, the bicycle, you're rather applying a sort of brake to the flywheel. And so you can determine the power output 50 watts. And then every few, every two minutes, they increase the wattage that you have to put out by 25 and you just keep going. So this graded sort of exercise test allows you to arrive at that maximal intensity where you can no longer support or sustain that effort level. VO2 max from a baseline can generally improve by about 15 to 20% on average, although it can go much higher in serious uh, endurance athletes. Although that is, there's a caveat there because when people are really well-trained, particularly in endurance sports, an increase in their VO2 max further doesn't necessarily correlate with improved performance. Similarly, a maintenance or even a, like a staleness of their VO2 max doesn't correlate with staleness in their performance. It just tends to correlate less because there's other stuff that contributes to performance. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to point out here that this is kind of one way of looking at this uh, kind of aerobic me metabolism that's involved in, in performing these kind of conditioning efforts. But in the context of <clears throat> competition, there's going to be a lot of sport specific factors. And when you get to very high level uh, competition, you know, most of these people are in very, very good shape. And so then it comes down to, you know, small differences between people in other factors and sometimes even like, you know, day of variables in terms of like psychological status, various things relating to, you know, be it sleep, nutrition, technique, strategy, you know, the way that if particularly if it's not an individual thing, but if you're racing other people, um, how exactly you navigate your, your race and things like that. So you can't just assume that the the, the person with the higher VO2 max is going to win a, you know, a race or something like that. There's, there's typically a lot more variables involved, but this is one obviously very commonly discussed and important one. Yep, for sure. Uh, there are a number of variables that influence VO2 max that are kind of outside your control. So sex, for example, it's higher in males than females, uh, genetics, uh, some papers, some uh, texts, depending on who you read and how recently you read it will suggest that you know, VO2 max is kind of genetically determined about half of it. 50% is determined by genetics. Also age uh, tends to decline 
with age, uh, approximately 7% in women per decade, or 7% in men per decade and 10% in women per decade. But that's mostly an untrained slash insufficiently active type folks. And this can be like attenuated or even eliminated by in some with training. And uh, master's athletes can have remarkably high VO2 max levels. We'll talk about that here shortly. Also, uh, things like race contributes and, of course, stuff you can control. Uh, training certainly contributes to your resting or your uh, VO2 max level. Um, as far as normal values or reference values of what is normal for VO2 max, these have been published uh, in multiple different areas with multiple different populations being studied. Probably the one I think that's most recent and maybe uh, most representative of our listenership is from the Fitness Registry and the Importance of Exercise, a national database, which has the great acronym FRIEND. <laughs> this is a registry that was collected uh, from the year 2014 to 2016. There's data from close to 4,500 cycle ergometer tests where they maxed, basically people maxed out on a bicycle and they tested their VO2 max. It was from men and women aged 20 to 79 years from 27 different states. None of them had any cardiovascular disease and they were basically used to develop these reference values. There are other studies from different countries, different cohorts, different uh, disease states, et cetera, where you can get these normal values for a particular individual if you were trying to cor see, you know, correlate or see, do I have high or low or you know, whatever VO2 max? But uh, yeah, this is a pretty good data set that I kind of went, went deep on. So as far as what is normal, for it does again vary by age, but the 50th percentile, so the sort of you know, middle value for men age 20 to 29 is 42 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute. That's their VO2 max, how much oxygen they can maximally kind of pull in. And in that same age group, it's 31 for women. So again, lower in women. Some of that's due to anatomy, uh, lungs being smaller in general. Heart size is another significant variable there too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, you know, they have this for pretty much every decade, all the way up into the 70s. And so individuals age 70 to 79, the average VO2 max uh, was 19 and a half milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute for men and 14.8 for women. In comparison, master's athletes age 62, uh, a group was actually studied and they looked at their VO2 max, it was 54. So significantly higher uh, in these, those uh, masters endurance athletes who were men. And the sedentary group in that particular uh, study, the average was 34. So yes, training can have a market effect on VO2 max. Again, probably about a, a potential to increase it 15 to 20% in most folks. But again, if you become this ultra endurance athlete, a lot of endurance training, it would not surprise me for that number to go up. Uh, last thing I will tell you guys with relationship to VO2 max testing, it matters the mode by which you test it. So you can test it on a treadmill. You can test it on a, a bicycle. Uh, there's also like a step up way to uh, measure it. And so you can't really compare values across different modes without some sort of conversion factor. And there are plenty of papers out there that try to do that. Uh, there are also sub-maximal ways to assess somebody's VO2 max and then predict it via an equation. But uh, that's kind of beyond the scope of this podcast. The only thing I will tell you is that if you're comparing uh, somebody's VO2 max on a bicycle versus a treadmill, it's usually 10 to 20% lower on a bicycle. Um, and that tends to do with people's leg strength, leg power, the muscle mass involved, and just and also training. So if you, you know tested Lance Armstrong's VO2 max, on a bicycle versus a treadmill, I would suspect, and actually I think, I believe I read that his VO2 max was much higher on a bike than the treadmill. 
just due to his training. Yeah, people might come across certain things where it's like, here's a task that you can go out and do, go run for this amount of time. And then, you know, based on how far you get or whatever, the, you know, certain variables that you can plug into an equation. I actually noticed recently because I do a fair amount of conditioning on the the uh, Concept 2 rower. They actually have like an equation on their site that you can plug in a effort or a performance and it can predict something. And I even noticed like, you know, I know you also use like a an Apple Watch has a heart rate heart rate tracker when you're training, and it sometimes also will spit out VO2 max values. I'm unclear on the reliability and accuracy of said measures, um, but there's just a whole lot of noise, I imagine, between different modalities, but different ways of, of measuring it, different ways of assessing it. And so potentially, if you're not going to go into a, a an actual lab and do something like this, which I would not argue that really most people need to do for any significant reason, um, that maybe uh, if you're using a similar modality, that trends might be helpful to monitor over time if that's something that you care about. Yeah. And I think, you know, we probably don't have a lot of people who are super competitive endurance athletes here, but I would not even equate a VO2 max test to like a one RM test, uh, mainly because it, there's a more significant cap to its sort of peak value. Uh, and rather something like a a lactate threshold test would be more telling. And we'll talk about that on the next episode. Um, cause that's kind of telling you, Hey, what is your, you know, aerobic capacity right now? How hard can you go, uh, before things start becoming anaerobic and you have to kind of shut it down? Um, in any case, if you were wondering like, what is the average VO2 max value in us adults and how does it compare to these reference values? It is significantly lower, but again, it depends what the study population was, how much disease that particular group had and how they tested it. Uh, but when I say that the average for, you know, adults 20 to 29 was 42 for men and 31 for women, you can expect that if you actually took a thousand adults in the United States in that age group and you tested their VO2 max, it would be significantly lower because again, most folks are insufficiently active, have one or more medical conditions and, you know, their exercise tolerance then by way of those things is, is significantly lower. Um, you know, talking about VO2 max, you're talking about milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute. These are kind of abstract. People are like, wait, how much is a milliliter of oxygen? I don't even know. And so a lot of times, particularly in the research, they talk about exercise tolerance and use that as a predictor of like all cause mortality or cardiovascular disease or whatever. And they use METs or metabolic equivalents. And so you can convert someone's VO2 max to metabolic equivalents. And so a brief review on metabolic equivalents is necessary here. A metabolic equivalent or MET represents the ratio of the metabolic rate during an activity compared to the metabolic rate at rest. One MET or one metabolic equivalent is uh, approximately one kilocalorie per kilogram of body weight used per hour, which is the approximate energy cost of sitting quietly. Uh, It does scale uh, pretty pretty much uh, linearly. So a five metabolic equivalent or five met activity uses five times as much energy as sitting at rest and a five met activity performed for 20 minutes would achieve 100 met minutes of energy expenditure. And then that's important because the current exercise guidelines recommend 500 to a thousand met minutes per week of aerobic activity. Uh, this scale again, continually, uh, and indefinitely uh, goes upwards uh, with an activity like rowing at 12 and a half miles per hour, which is 20 kilometers per hour, representing an activity of about 20 mets and can confirm that is fast AF. Uh, <laughs> I was like, how long can I do 20 mets? And the answer is not very long. Um, 
In any case, one MET also correlates to three and a half, 3.5 milliliters of oxygen consumed per kilogram body weight per minute. So you can, again, transfer somebody's VO2 max to a MET number. And so if we go back to our sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, if we go back to our sort of normal uh, VO2 max values we had for the folks age 20 to 29, that 42 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute for men is a 12 met exercise tolerance. And 30, the 31 value for women is 8.8 mets. And so I think that just reads better in the literature when you're talking about, you know, versus VO2 max versus a met number. Met numbers are smaller, uh, simpler. There's less sort of, you know, uh, uh, denominators in there. I don't know. What would you rather read? A paper talking about exercise tolerance related to METs or VO2 max? I don't know. I, I kind of, it, it's interesting to think about because the, you know, at this point having thrown around, you know, language, uh, relating to VO2 max enough and having a sense of the scale, I can kind of, you know, appreciate those numbers, um, particularly in the context of like sports and performance and, and like ultra endurance athletes. But then METs are, as you said, much simpler. And admittedly, in practice in medicine, we actually use METs um, when we're like assessing patients in terms of their fitness to actually undergo surgery and things like that. We try to ask them questions about, you know, certain activities to get a sense of can they do this many number of METs? And if they can, then we're like, okay, you know, you're probably good to go for surgery from your, at least from your heart's standpoint. But if you can't, maybe I need to, you know, check out your heart a little bit more. So I, I actually use METs more often day to day. But when you hear about like a really impressive VO2 max number, you're like this freak of nature was like in the nineties or something. It's like, I don't even, can't even comprehend that. <laughs> yeah. This guy runs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the Mets for like equating that to a particular activity. And again, there's a, what's called a metabolic compendium. Uh, the last one they put together, they, they do this periodically, but the last Met compendium that was put together that basically describes, you know, activities uh, that occur on the job site or recreational pursuits or even activities of daily life. That was published in 2011 by Ainsworth. I'll link that in the description below. It's oddly specific. It's like as, as granular as like walking uphill backwards, carrying a backpack. And you're like, oddly specific, but okay. Uh, and so if you were like, does my patient have a eight met sort of exercise tolerance, you might ask them a number of exercises. Uh, can they do this? Uh, and there's just a whole myriad of ones you can pull up from that compendium. So that is cardiorespiratory fitness. That is different than conditioning. Conditioning is an umbrella term that includes physical activities designed to improve endurance, which is the ability of muscles to sustain repeated force production at a given level for a relatively long period of time. The two main subcategories of conditioning are aerobic, which uses oxygen to create energy, and anaerobic, which does not use oxygen to produce energy. Uh, again, these refer to different metabolic pathways used to produce energy, and that energy sort of substrate or the common energy used is called adenosine triphosphate or ATP, cellular currency. You may have heard that in your biology 101 class. Um, in the context of exercise, the energy is used to facilitate muscular force production, both directly and indirectly. And so if we go further down the rabbit hole, aerobic conditioning refers to exercise done for longer durations, usually greater than one minute at sustainable paces. Aerobic metabolism uses oxygen to create energy. This process takes a relatively long time, but is very efficient and can be sustained, mainly because the waste products that it produces uh, do not therefore limit sort of 
that muscular force production, limit energy production, etc. Aerobic metabolism, however, cannot keep up with the energy demands of the muscle fibers capable of creating the most force, which is one factor affecting the pace that can be sustained for long periods of time. So as the pace increases, you need to produce more force so you can go faster. And effectively, you've outkicked your coverage with respect to your body's ability to create energy. And so in that case, you switch over to more anaerobic conditioning, anaerobic metabolism, which refers to exercise usually done for shorter durations at given time, usually less than a minute. Um, and again, you'll read different texts, different papers or whatever. And sometimes it's 45 seconds to 90 seconds, 60 seconds or whatever. But I just use a minute and I understand that as a gross oversimplification. Um, but yeah, anaerobic con uh, conditioning is shorter duration exercise at maximal or near maximal intensities that in general cannot be sustained for very long. Anaerobic metabolism includes the alactic and glycolytic pathways. Despite oxygen being available for us to use, neither of these alactic or glycolytic pathways can use it because these pathways create energy rapidly in order to support very high levels of muscular force production. Anaerobic metabolism cannot be maintained for extended periods of time due to limited amounts of store, stored energy and the buffering ability of the body. This is one factor affecting the duration that maximal paces can be sustained for. The alectic pathway that I referred to uses stored ATP and phosphocreatine to produce energy for muscle in very short durations, like less than six seconds. It does not create lactate, hence the alactic sort of moniker, uh, which also means without lactate, uh, because it does not partially metabolize glucose to create energy. Basically uses stored energy in the muscle already, ATP and phosphocreatine. Uh, for the highest production of muscular power, ATP and uh, phosphocreatine are stored in the muscle cells. They account for virtually all of the energy expenditure in active muscles. When you need, you know, when you need it, high power force production, you're using this alactic pathway. Uh, so that's stuff like Olympic weightlifting, high jumping, discus throwing, baseball pitching, etc. They typically involve mostly ATP and phosphocreatine breakdown to create the necessary energy to supply the muscles so that they produce force. Uh, the subsequent force generation and activity is very short and uh, involves additional metabolism of those metabolic byproducts. After the performance of these tasks, ATP and phosphocreatine are returned to resting levels from their metabolic end products of adenosine diphosphate, adenosine monophosphate, creatine, and organic phosphate by means of aerobic metabolism uh, of carbohydrates and fats in the mitochondria, which is the main organelle for energy produc production. And that's a lot of physiology terms, a lot of biology, but basically what happens after you split the ATP and the phosphocreatine down, and eventually you have to stop doing what you're doing, then you can switch over to this aerobic metabolism to sort of replenish those stores. So people are like, oh, after a heavy set, what are my ATP levels? Yeah, well, they've gone down a little bit, but during your rest periods, they're coming back up to normal. And so it's going to be tough to capture a sort of really reduced ATP or phosphocreatine level. And in fact, if they are reduced for long periods of time, uh, generally that's incompatible with life and uh, uh, you can't really relax your muscles. And so that we typically see that when folks uh, pass away and we call that rigor mortis for a period of time. They don't really have <laughs> enough energy to relax their muscles. Worth pointing out, you know, from, from that standpoint, these ultra short, very high force production efforts. And as you said, you know, aerobically, it doesn't take terribly long for you to replenish those energy stores after that, such that if you did, you know, a single in your powerlifting training or something like that, resting uh, significantly longer is not, you know, adding to your energy availability in that immediate, you know, uh, uh, 
term. And so to the extent that you feel better or more capable by resting longer, it's probably due to non-energy related limitations. It's probably in your brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's a whole nother topic, which we may explore on a podcast. But, you know, people like I got to get my ATP back up. I got to get my foster creatine up. Or in some cases, they're like, well, I used, you know, a bit of sugar, glucose, to power my legs and my body to get this single repetition of squats up. So I got to eat sour gummies or whatever, or something fast acting during a training session. It's like, you're not limited by those things doing another single later on, because again, it just didn't cost you that much. Uh, there are other factors contributing to fatigue from that single effort that you don't really have control over. Um, so to speak. So in any case, a lactic pathway, really short, less than six seconds uses stored energy, ATP and phosphocreatine. You break them down and during rest periods, they come right back up and then you're able to go again from that standpoint. But there are other factors that contribute to fatigue and subsequent performance. The glycolytic pathway does use glucose. It partially metabolizes it to create ATP for short efforts, but longer than the alactic pathway. We're talking about stuff, you know, longer than six to 10 seconds in general, but less than a minute. The glycolytic pathway creates lactate and hydrogen ions, sometimes incorrectly called lactic acid, but they're usually not bound together. They're sort of dissociated as the chemists would say. Uh, And lactate effectively goes through the systemic Uh, vasculature, so through the blood vessels, all the way back to the liver. And in the liver, it undergoes this process that's called the Cori cycle to create glucose again, which you can use later for fuel. So it's not like lactate is this boogeyman. It's just a energy intermediate that gets shuffled around, cycled around to be used as you need it. The longer the period of exercise within that sort of 10 to 60 second range, the greater the proportion obtained from anaerobic glycolysis, that glycolytic pathway, as evidenced by the increasing amounts of lactate and hydrogen ions found in exercising muscle and subsequently the blood. Recovery and the return to resting ATP and phosphocreatine concentrations, as well as the removal of lactate and hydrogen ions are again accomplished by means of aerobic metabolism of carbohydrates and fat. And again, just resting or moving to a slower, more sustainable pace where aerobic metabolism can sort of take over. That all being said, I don't want you guys to think about this stuff as the like dichotomous sort of things, whereas certain activities are only aerobic and other activities are only anaerobic. These designations used here refer to the sort of primary mechanism of energy production during each type of activity, but there are significant contributions from all metabolic pathways to activities during that entire sort of range. And so even on your shortest effort, you know, a few seconds or whatever, you're still using a little bit of energy created via aerobic metabolism. And even during your longest efforts, you're still using a little bit of energy created from anaerobic pathways. For example, the energy production uh, is split nearly 50-50 between alactic and glycolytic pathways during a maximal six-second sprint. And there are mixed contributions of anaerobic and aerobic pathways for racing distances ranging from as short as 200 meters up to 1500 meters. And so it's not all or none. You're using, your body will use all its potential means of energy production to accomplish the task. And further, you don't have control over this other than your pacing strategy. So effectively, if you're going all out, you're using everything you got, you're going to use all the pathways you can to, to make sure you got enough energy on board. Yeah. And if you have any experience doing that task, you probably know it. <laughs> when you're when you're pushing into that range, right? You start to feel that discomfort, that burn. You start to feel that feeling in the deep in your gut. You might get nauseated. You, all sorts of things that I remember experiencing a lot when like pushing really, really hard in the pool, and then much less frequently nowadays in, in the kind of conditioning efforts that I do now. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I get that that sort of stitch or or that sort of uh, you know feeling of like, oh, 
I'm, I'm, I've outkicked my coverage when I'm doing the sort of threshold work, you know, whether it's high intensity interval training uh, of the anaerobic variety. So pretty short, 20 to 30 seconds, or even if they're aerobic intervals on incomplete rest, as you start to push it, you start getting near your threshold. Uh, yeah, your, your body will say, I doth protest, sir. <laughs> and <laughs> we'll, we'll find ways to keep you um, within the sort of uh, normal range rather than go to the danger zone uh, or the red zone, so to speak. But again, that's for another podcast, potentially the next one. We'll see. We'll see how far we get here. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Finally, we've talked about what is physical activity, what is exercise, should we distinguish it from training. We talked about cardiorespiratory fitness as a, and how to measure it using VO2 max. We talked about what conditioning is. Uh, the final frontier here is resistance training. And this is a physical activity where the muscles of the body create force via contraction against a load or weight. The load may be external or internal to the individual. So like a barbell would be external or bodyweight exercises, calisthenics would be internal. Uh, similarly, the contraction may be dynamic where the muscles lengthen. That's an eccentric contraction or shorten, which is concentric contraction in a coordinated fashion. So you go down in a squat, that's eccentric lengthening. You stand up, that's concentric short or it may be static where the muscle creates force but stays the same length. That's isometric. And so I remember I had a, an ask me anything question where somebody was like, describe resistance training in one sentence. And I'm like, uh, how many, can it be a run on sentence? Cause that's the only <laughs> way I can do this. How many semicolons <laughs> can I get here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now that we have all those definitions out of the way, we kind of get to the meat of this particular podcast. Why is cardiorespiratory fitness important? And so again, Austin, you know, you're in the hospital, you're dealing with people in the most vulnerable moment in general, uh, folks aren't doing so well if they're getting admitted to the hospital, the cardiorespiratory fitness of the folks that you see in general is not only reduced below their baseline, but their baseline is also in general, pretty low. Would you say that? The vast majority is abysmally low. Yes. I mean, these are, these are folks that, you know, if I'm lucky, they can stand up out of bed or out of a chair independently and can walk around independently. And if I see like, you know, I'll be doing rounds in the hospital. I might be walking around. If I see one of my patients, you know, walking around uh, the ward by themselves, I'm that's, it's kind of like a little surprising to see that <laughs> even if they're walking around by themselves and using a walker, I'm like, all right, this guy's up, he's moving. This is awesome. This is great to see. 
but most most are not even really able to do that a lot of the time for various you know due to various limitations but in general their baseline fitness is uh, not particularly high on average yep yeah and that kind of corroborates the existing data you know from a health perspective large data sets, large meta-analyses, which are studies of studies, looking at the relationship between aerobic fitness levels and things like all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease risk, et cetera, indicate that there's a dose-response relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness levels and risk reduction for disease or death. In other words, the higher level of cardiorespiratory fitness that an individual has, the lower their risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. The dose-response relationship is particularly strong up to an exercise tolerance of eight METs, although there appears to be a continued benefit to achieving higher and higher cardiorespiratory fitness levels. And that doesn't mean it's linear, meaning that, you know, you have the same increase from eight to 10 and 10 to 12, 12 to 14, but it does seem to keep going up uh, as you get more and more fit as your exercise tolerance keeps going up. Uh, as far as what t- sort of activities kind of correlate to that eight metabolic equivalent uh, exercise tolerance, things like calisthenics, so push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, jumping jacks at a heavy, vigorous effort would count, jogging at five and a half miles per hour or nine kilometers per hour, uh, or running in place at a vigorous intensity, like jumping rope, 60 skips per minute, which is uh, pretty quick, pretty quick on the old handle. Yeah. Swimming at 1.8 miles per hour. That's three kilometers per hour, water skiing, squash or handball. Uh, Most sustained activities where a conversation cannot be maintained using short sentences. Um, So there's, and if you look at that med compendium, there's stuff all over the place. You can kind of find something. If you're wondering like, do I have an eight metabolic equivalent exercise tolerance? Well, just look. And if there's stuff that you can do on there and you're like, okay, cool, I've achieved this sort of minimum cardiorespiratory fitness that I need to sort of reduce my risk of all co- premature all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, but doesn't mean it can't be better. So to reiterate that, like just how important is it, is it to have greater than an eight metabolic equivalent exercise tolerance? Uh, a meta-analysis reviewing 33 studies and nearly 190,000 subjects uh, where the folks were grouped into low intermediate and high categories of cardiorespiratory fitness. The low group had less than 7.9 metabolic equivalent exercise tolerance. The intermediate group ranged from 7.9 to 10.8 metabolic equivalents for their exercise tolerance. And the high cardiorespiratory fitness group had an exercise tolerance of 10.9 metabolic equivalents or higher. For all-cause mortality, when they compared the low fitness group to the intermediate or high group, Uh, they had a 56% greater risk compared to the intermediate fitness group and a 70% greater risk of premature all-cause mortality compared to the high group. When they compared the intermediate fitness group to the high group, the intermediate group had a 13% greater risk of premature all-cause mortality compared to the high fitness group. When we look at heart disease risk, the low cardiorespiratory fitness group, again, those are the folks with less than 7.9 metabolic equivalents of exercise tolerance. Uh, They had a 40% greater risk of heart disease compared to the intermediate fitness group and a 47% greater risk of heart disease compared to the high fitness category. And then when they compared the intermediate uh, uh, group to the high fitness group, the intermediate group had a 7% greater risk of heart disease compared to the high group. And that's just two 
health outcomes. You could do the same thing for type 2 diabetes or sort of glucose metabolism, cholesterol, et cetera. Pretty much every sort of um, variable that contributes to either heart disease risk or all-cause mortality, you see this a similar um, dose-dependent relationship. It doesn't mean it's the same exact percentage risk or whatnot, but you see the similar relationship. And so again, there's this dose-dependent relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness and sort of health trajectory. Uh, similarly, a high level of cardiorespiratory fitness activity seems to negate our otherwise sedentary existence. A 2016 meta-analysis of 16 studies involving over 1 million individuals, uh, they looked at the daily sitting time uh, of over eight hours per day. Everyone included in the study sat for eight hours or more per day and how that was associated with an increase in all-cause mortality. This risk, however, was no longer evident amongst those individuals who engaged in moderate intensity aerobic activity for approximately an hour to 75 minutes per day or more. Similar study, in 150,000 Australian adults aged 45 and older, there was an association between greater sitting time and increased mortality that was found amongst insufficiently active individuals. However, even among individuals with the most sitting time, the association with increased mortality was eliminated with the addition of over 300 minutes per week of moderate to high intensity physical activity. So basically, when people are like, sitting is the new smoking, it's like, yeah, that's true if you're insufficiently active, but I don't know if you needed a study or a headline or a soundbite yeah, to right. tell you that. <laughs> the real question is, is there a unique risk to sitting? If you are sufficiently active, and it doesn't seem like that's the case, effectively, if you are sufficiently active, active enough, um, sitting doesn't appear to um, generate any additional risk. Uh, that said, sitting less and exercising more is likely to lead to higher fitness levels. And so, I mean, I guess if you're spending that time you were otherwise spending sitting, exercising, you don't lose your job, uh, <laughs> then you're good yeah. to go. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, the initial data that you were citing before, a lot of that is epidemiologic kind of observational stuff. And, you know, it can show this dose response. It just is difficult to say that those differences in risk are directly caused by differences in their aerobic fitness capacity. It could also relate to, you know, what are the kind of things that were driving the people on the low end to be lower in fitness. To have low, And for then sure. similarly, what, how of those who have the higher fitness, what were the ways that they got there? And those probably have you know, benefits through numerous potential pathways for all of these kind of health outcomes like death, cancer, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. But then you also, you know, have some not only biological like plausibility that being fitter, you're probably going to die less. So it, it lends a little bit more confidence to that kind of a dose response effect. And then there's also plenty of prospective data um, on this too, that can further increase our confidence, not necessarily in the precise magnitude of benefit, but rather in like the directionality of it. And that it is a strong relationship between being, you know, having ha ha achieving higher levels of fitness um, and reducing your risk of death from all sorts of things, whether it is due to that kind of ultimate fitness variable itself, your METS or your VO2 max, or re whether it's more so related to like what you had to do to get there. Um, that is, you know, a little bit more difficult to tease out. But, you know, as you said, we didn't really need a headline to convince us of, uh, of some of this stuff at this point, but this just further solidifies it. Exercise is good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's it took us 240 bite. episodes to get here. Yeah, here yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, with respect to lifting performance, the data is either not clear or completely absent on this matter. Frankly, we just don't know what is the minimum level of cardiorespiratory fitness a person needs in order to produce maximal strength and or hypertrophy improvements. What we do know, however, is that aerobic training can be performed concurrently with resistance training. So at the same time, without compromising strength and hypertrophy outcomes, if 
and only if it is programmed correctly. We'll cover this in greater detail in the next episode, but briefly, overwhelmingly, the data suggests that engaging in aerobic conditioning up to three times per week for 30 minutes uh, per bout has no negative effect on strength or hypertrophy adaptations in untrained individuals. So these are folks who are not fit, um, who have no training tolerance at baseline, and they can do an additional three ep- you know, bouts of aerobic training with effectively no effect on their you know, strength or hypertrophy sort of trajectory. Um, and you know, for the lifters who are super well-trained are like, Oh, I got to maximize my gains. That's cool. There's a time and a place for that. You're going to a powerlifting meet, you're going to an Olympic weightlifting meet, get some other sort of strength sport thing that you're peaking for. Yeah. That's not the time to, you know, start your couch to 5k or, you know, endurance focused training. However, there is plenty of other time in the training year where maximum improvements in strength and or hypertrophy should not be the highest training priority. So off-season general development, injury rehab, et cetera, these are all opportunities that people have to sort of push improvements in conditioning that they otherwise are missing at the time. And so from a health perspective, I think ignoring that is to the detriment of the individual. Okay. I feel like we made a pretty good case for why cardiorespiratory fitness is important. We'll continue to hammer that over the rest of these the series, but we'll talk about some more mechanisms, pathways, you know, sort of outcome stuff as we go along. So we've defined our terms. We made the case for why cardiorespiratory fitness matters. What are the physiological similarities and differences between lifting weights and doing cardio? So there are similar, similarities here between resistance training and conditioning. For example, both use internal metabolic power to create muscular force which is then displayed as external mechanical power. So movement in both cases. Yeah, they both use energy that's created by metabolic pathways to move the body and interact with the environment. Okay, so you got that in common. In both situations, there is opposing force, commonly referred to as resistance, that could be applied to the individual to limit the number of repetitions of the movement before exhaustion. So in resistance training, this can be between 1 and one to 10 or 1 to 20, 1 to 30. I mean, really, it just depends how much load's on the bar. Uh, or in the case of you know aerobic training slash conditioning, you could limit it 10,000 steps. We commonly see that in marathons. So there's some sort of opposing force, whether it's added externally to the individual using a barbell, using a machine or whatever, or it can be the individual's own body weight in calisthenics, or similarly, the individual's body weight in uh, sort of locomotive activities like running, uh, for example. In this view, all exercise sort of lies on the spectrum described by force production and its energy requirements to produce movement against that resistance, whatever it is. That said, there's a ton of differences here. So cardiorespiratory fitness depends mostly on cardiac output. So that's a combination. It's the sum or, or sorry, the product rather of heart rate uh, and stroke volume. It's basically how much blood the heart is ejecting per beat. Also, it's dependent on blood volume. So how much blood you're carrying around. Uh, would not recommend doing a cardiorespiratory fitness test after you've lost significant amounts of blood. <laughs> uh, also, the tissue capillarization. So how many capillaries are available in the uh, sort of tissue itself, different uh, sort of buffering um, activities of various enzymes. There's a ton of stuff here. Um, and so when the exercise intensity is increased sufficiently for the movement to depend principally on anaerobic glycolysis, the circulatory factors become increasingly important with regard to the removal of things like carbon dioxide, lactate, hydrogen ions, etc. I just had this conversation with some of my students earlier today because we had a, a person who had low oxygen levels in their blood. And I, and I told them we're going to take like a, a magic school bus uh, style journey 
from an oxygen molecule that's floating around in the environment and how it gets all the way down to the level of the tissue. And really, if you want to think about the physiology of, you know, these kind of cardiorespiratory efforts, these endurance efforts, you can trace that path of oxygen coming down the airways, getting in your lungs, hopping into your blood, getting on a hemoglobin, going to your tissues um, by way of the heart that is pumping it there, and then your tissue's ability to take it up and then use it in the, in the cells. And then the aspects of that, that, as you said, are more limiting um, when it comes to endurance efforts, not so, you know, most of the time when people have adequate oxygen in the air, as opposed to like when they're working, you know, training at altitude or something like that, that can have a difference for the vast majority of people who don't have lung disease, their lungs are not the limiting factor. Our lungs are like overpowered for the ability to get oxygen in unless you have some kind of lung disease, um, you know, a fibrosing condition or COPD or something like that. But the cardiac, the heart itself is like a pretty significant limiter for a fair <laughs> number of people in terms of its um, ability to pump sufficient blood per beat and increase that efficiency. Um, and then obviously, you know, you want to have enough availability to carry oxygen in the blood. So that's where people who have anemia, for example, can be limited in their aerobic capacity, you know, to, to exercise. Um, and then it also be, obviously has to be taken up by the tissues and used, which itself has some kind of you know, adaptive factors, as you mentioned, how, how many capillaries are there to get into the tissues? What's the ability of these, how many mitochondria do the tissues have to be able to take up this oxygen and generate energy through aerobic metabolism? But all of those variables, all those steps in the physiology are not equally important. Um, in other words, the kinds that the, the variables that will limit people more are mostly, you know, uh, centered around uh, cardiac output and the, the cardiovascular kind of system. And, and the reason I'm hammering this is just because we've dealt with folks before who have, in contrast, talked about strength training and like, well, it got my heart rate up, so it's probably giving me some, you know, conditioning effort. And it's like not the same thing that we're talking about here, not the same yeah. demands, not the same limiters, not the same adaptations. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to raise your heart rate and call it cardio, you could get frightened on a regular basis. Yeah. You, you know, you could, uh, cocaine, uh, <laughs> cocaine works. You could, nicotine will work. Uh, you, you know, handful of other agents. There's yeah. all sorts of ways to sort of manufacture an elevated heart rate that will not contribute to your cardiorespiratory fitness. Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, resistance training performance does not rely on these sort of circulatory system factors, but rather neuromuscular excitability, short-term stores of energy in the muscle, muscle recruitment efficiency, uh, and other things fairly unrelated to the circulatory system in general. They both activate different principal physiological pathways. So for example, resistance training activates mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, P70S6K, and other pathways to drive changes principally at the level of the muscle and the neuromuscular junction, that's where the nerve actually hits the muscle and sends its signal to it to improve force production. Uh, whereas aerobic training's main pathway to drive improvements is through another pathway called PGC1-alpha, which subsequently influences mitochondrial density. Again, that creates all the energy. Uh, it's mitochondrial activity, um, capillarization at the level of the tissues, uh, and again, factors that are related to the heart's function, principally its ability to pump a lot of blood per beat. Your heart rate kind of is what it is. Training, yeah, does improve the heart's ability to extract oxygen so the heart rate can change. But principally, its main sort of adaptation is the ability to contract harder with more blood and, and be more efficient in doing so before you sort of hit that wall. There are plenty of other unique differences in pathway activation between the two exercise modes that are interesting but not terribly important. And again, if I went through all of them, people's eyes would not only glaze over, they would full-on turn into a donut, just like completely <laughs> opaque. Rather, the appreciation that these pathways are different 
and generate unique adaptations is the key here. So if you're looking for a podcast that describes all these pathways, it, this ain't it. Mainly because I did not want to just talk about all these acronyms and weirdly labeled pathways that ultimately people will forget anyway. Yeah, you just, just need to get a master's degree if you want that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you can come back to the same thing that, yep, they're just different pathways principally. Um, and then you're, you're right back here at, uh, you know, minute 56 of the <laughs> episode 236 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast with Dr. Austin Baraki yeah. and myself, <laughs> Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Um, so how does this unique pathway activation affect outcomes? So in response to exercise in general, humans alter the phenotype of their skeletal muscle, changing the store of nutrients, the amount and type of metabolic enzymes, the amount of contractile protein, the stiffness of connective tissue, the heart's function, um, the uh, tissue's availability or ability to extract oxygen. Just all this stuff happens in response to exercise in general. The magnitude of the acquired training adaptation is proportional to the train stimulus and also dependent on the individual's training experience and their initial fitness uh, level. According to the principle of specificity, that said principle, physiological adaptations reflect the specific stress imposed on the body during various bouts of exercise. And so resistance training produces little effect on the circulatory system since it demands relatively little of them. Yes, your heart rate goes up, but not to the same degree and for the same duration and the same way that it goes up uh, in uh, aerobic training or conditioning exercise, just like being frightened or taking a sort of uh, medication that raises your heart rate does not raise your heart and do all of the other things and activate the subsequent pathways um, that conditioning does. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, or sorry, with respect to resistance training, its main effects occur at the level of the muscle by increasing the signal transferred from the nerve to the muscle in order to tell it to contract, reducing opposing signals, so that antagonistic uh, sort of activity of uh, muscle opposing the other's force, and making the contraction more powerful in general. On the other hand, aerobic training produces little effects on the processes relating to maximal force production as it demands relatively little of them. Uh, rather, most of the improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness as measured by VO2 max, an increase in lactate threshold, so that's just the pace and uh, tempo of the activity um, by which where lactate starts occurring in the blood and you can measure it, the ventilatory threshold, so where your respiratory rate increases, exercise economy, et cetera. These are all driven by adaptations to the heart and the vascular system predominantly. Yes, there are adaptations that occur at the sort of level of the muscle. That's mostly related to how good it is at extracting oxygen and shuttling carbon dioxide, lactate, hydrogen ions, et cetera, into the system to be eliminated. At the level of the heart, we see increases in stroke volume. So again, how much blood can be pumped per beat um, that ultimately increases cardiac output. Also, we see an increase in what's called myocardial efficiency, so the efficiency of the heart. Effectively, the heart gets better itself at extracting oxygen from the bloodstream, so it doesn't reach that wall, that threshold, too quickly. In the peripheral vascular system, we see an increase in capillary density, so you have more capillaries available. And at the level of the muscle, we see greater mitochondrial density, so more mitochondria, more mitochondrial enzymatic activity, et cetera. And all this stuff leads to better oxygen extraction in those tissues. And there are plenty of others, but what you need to know is that whatever the exercise mode or type that you're doing, whatever it demands of the system, those are the adaptations you're going to get. And because resistance training demands very little of the circulatory system in general, especially compared to conditioning exercise, you just don't get that many adaptations in the circulatory system other than those that are necessary to support resistance training. Because aerobic training or conditioning demands little of maximal force production at the level of the muscle, you get relatively little adaptation at the level of the muscle to generate maximal force outside of things 
generally relating to conditioning performance. Despite these differences, there's some overlap here. And so we talk about like transference between exercise, between exercises like, oh, what are the best exercises to increase the deadlift? And in general, most of them are deadlift related or deadlift adjacent. So like a two count pause deadlift, deficit deadlift, mid shin rack pull, Romanian deadlift. But you can go further down the line, like a pendlay row is going to have some sort of transference to the deadlift because they share sort of similar, um, you know, joint angles. They're not perfectly analogous, but it's closer than like a one legged kettlebell swing on a BOSU ball. Um, just like uh, if you're talking about the squat, yeah, leg press contributes a little bit, certainly more than leg extension. Um, so there's overlap between the two. So for example, recent data shows that high volume, low intensity uh, resistance training can drive some uh, adaptations that we normally see with endurance training. Most of this data is on blood flow restriction stuff, where you effectively you apply a tourniquet at the, uh, you know, just above your biceps, um, and you do arm stuff, or you apply it at the proximal thigh, so near your groin, and you do leg stuff. Um, but yeah, that that's where most of this data comes from, showing that hey, sometimes if you lift weights, particularly under you know situations where the circulatory system is taxed to a higher degree than it normally would, yeah, you can get some adaptations that we see normally with endurance training. Outside of that, if we look at just traditional resistance training, so no blood flow restriction stuff, we really only have a handful of studies that have assessed the effect of resistance training on aerobic training type outcomes. So for example, there's one study that looked at uh, uh, groups of people doing either 8 to 12 reps at 75 to 90% of their 1RM or 20 to 25 reps at 30 to 50% of their 1RM uh, in trained, uh, trained men. The data showed that both programs had a positive effect on the amount of capillarization at the level of the muscle tissue. So how much cap, how, you know, much, uh, how many capillaries you actually have, which is good for blood flow. That's typically an endurance related response. There's also, uh, there was an increase in markers of vasodilation. So the ability of the blood vessel to dilate or get bigger. And this implies that there are positive adaptations to the vasculature and microvasculature that occurred, uh, from resistance training. And, uh, that just tells me that, look, if the intensity is high enough and you're, you're doing enough reps per set, there's some sort of aerobic challenge there and you're going to get some sort of benefit. The magnitude though is much, much smaller than you would see in aerobic training. Uh, there's another study that did the same thing. It was three different resistance training programs in untrained males this time. So one group took 30% of their one RM to failure. Another group took 80% of their one RM to failure. And then another group who used 30%, but did the same amount of reps as the 80% group. And the results from this study showed that there were, uh, markers for uh, that are associated with mitochondrial biogenesis, so generating more mitochondria and mitochondrial activity um, that are similar to those seen in endurance training, but it only occurred in the 30% group that was taken to failure. And the way I interpret that is that you need to do enough reps per set to actually create a sort of aerobic challenge. And the 80% is somewhere like a seven to eight RM maybe. And so, yeah, it's just not enough reps per set, but as you get higher, yeah, there's some sort of demand there. And so you're going to get some sort of overlap in the adaptations that you would normally see from endurance training. It's worth emphasizing these two concepts that you've laid out. One is that like all of this, you know, exercise, human movement in various modes, whether strength or, you know, conditioning related is just a giant spectrum. And that, you know, paying attention to what is the, what is the primary limiter for, you know, a given activity or for a given person is a, is a great way to identify what are going to be the, the prime adaptations that we get. And then just being cautious not to, you know, 
make too many assumptions about the breadth of adaptations that you get well beyond that. And and we are familiar with these kind of arguments from some of our old friends from back in the day who used to talk about like getting your squat up to, you know, it's extremely high weights to like build a bigger engine so that you could become a better cyclist or something like that, which is just nonsense because, you know, you are just fundamental. Your cycling ability is fundamentally not limited by your force output beyond a relatively low level of, of baseline strength. Like obviously if I have one of my patients who can't stand up, yeah, getting them stronger, is going to have dramatic effects on their ability to participate and engage in conditioning and aerobic type efforts. But those benefits taper off relatively quickly in the same way that if we had flipped the script and said, taking your, taking your, you know, uh, uh, aerobic capacity up to being able to run a, you know, a two thirty marathon or something like that is just going to be able to make you recover between sets so much better or something like that, or between reps and your strength training performance is going to improve. You get scoffing at that because they're like, well, that's not the thing that's limiting me here. And it's like, well, you have identified the core of yeah. the argument here. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you figured it out. Yeah. But yeah. some level of cardiorespiratory fitness is certainly yep. necessary. Yeah. But it's just not, yeah, the magnitude differs. Yeah. Okay. So uh, with respect to VO2 max changes from resistance training, this is a big topic where people are like, oh, yeah, again, my heart rate went up while I was lifting weights or putting weights away or whatever. And so, yeah, uh, I can see an improvement in my VO2 max, which is a marker of cardiorespiratory fitness just from lifting alone. So let's look at what does the data say? So this was a meta-analysis that included studies using traditional high-intensity resistance training programs, no circuit training. That's kind of blend a blend of both that are, you know, design, that you get some of both, but less, less of the poles, right? So like people are like, well, what about CrossFit? And I'm like, well, traditional CrossFit metabolic conditioning, you would kind of call that circuit training on some level. Um, and yeah, you're going to get some endurance adaptations, some, um, sort of resistance training adaptations. Um, you're going to get more of each than you would get from focusing on just endurance training or just sort of traditional resistance training. Uh, but you're not going to get as much of one compared to focusing on, on the one in any case. So this was just a meta-analysis using traditional high-intensity resistance training programs. They did not combine any of these with blood flow restriction. That was an exclusion criteria. No vibration platform stuff or whatever. Um, Rather, all of these things used at least 50% of their 1RM or higher. There was stuff where they did daily maxing in here. They all lasted more than six weeks. They assessed VO2 max, muscle strength, muscle size, and these were all in individuals who were previously untrained. The age, uh, they had two sort of... uh, uh, groups that they, they studied. One was age 20 to 40 and the other one was 60 and older. So they had a young and a quote unquote old group. And they found that resistance training increased strength on a range from 10 to 97%. I hope I got the, the training intervention that increased strength 97%. Um, of these only three out of 17 studies showed that VO2 max actually increased and they were only in young individuals aged 20 to 40. And so these three studies out of the 17 that they actually measured VO2 max before and after only three of them showed an increase. One study showed a 6% increase. Those folks trained with a 5 to 10 RM load. One other study showed a 9% increase. They uh, trained at 6 RM loads. And the group with the highest increase in VO2 max was a 13% increase. And then they did 16 weeks of lifting at 60% by 15 reps per set. And again, just more aerobic demands on their sets. Uh, The authors concluded that the results of these studies show that there is no significant relationship between a change in VO2 max and training intensity in young adults. And I know what you're you're saying. You're like, well, how do they come up with that conclusion based on, you just told me that three studies showed an increase. Yeah, but all of them had a low VO2 max when they started training. All of them had a significantly lower VO2 max than you would otherwise expect from a healthy individual prior to starting exercise. And so it kind of makes sense to me that if you have a sort of stunted 
or underdeveloped VO2 max, and you do any type of exercise, you're going to get an increase. But none of these increases are like huge, a 13% increase. Like, yeah, dude, but you were starting at 30 and the normal (laughs) reference value is 42. So now you're at what, 34 or 35? You're still low, bro. Yeah. Um, as far as other studies looking at other different variables, um, they looked at studies where you train six days per week uh, versus five days per week. There was no difference there um, compared to even lower uh, frequencies. So it didn't look like frequency really mattered that much. Um, they looked at studies with different rest periods, things from five minutes compared to one minute. And you would think, hey, shorter rest periods, there's got to be more sort of demand of this circulatory system because I'm on shorter rest. Yeah, didn't really seem to matter here when just looking at resistance training only. And again, the only study showing an increase in VO2 max, the folks had a below average VO2 max when they started. And it was only in younger individuals. It has been said, oh yeah, older folks are deconditioned. They're previously sedentary. Yeah, they're going to see a big effect here. Yeah, well, not in these studies. And only to the point where it no longer becomes a limiter. And then from there on out, you would not expect continued adaptation in the way that you would if you had dedicated conditioning training that was continuously putting demand on that system. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, when, when you talk about older individuals, the, this particular uh, meta-analysis looked at cardiorespiratory fitness changes in older adults who were exposed to resistance training. And they measured aerobic threshold, a six-minute walking distance test, and their VO2 peak. So to be eligible, the papers had to include folks only over the age of 60. They could have illnesses because individuals over 60, that's far more common there. These are all randomized controlled trials. There were 37 papers that they included. As far as their VO2 peak, 22 studies of the 37 looked at this. Um, and they ranged from, and three of them were longer than 24 weeks. The average improvement here was 1.89 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute. The minimum clinically important difference for that particular metric is one. And so I'm like, okay, so this thing barely changed. That just means that if the difference is one or smaller, it's probably an error. Um, and so yeah, pretty, pretty much insignificant change in VO2 max by my estimation. As far as the six minute walk test, um, those who were exposed to resistance training who got stronger, yes, increase in strength, bigger motor doesn't slow the car down, all that <laughs> sort of gibberish. Yeah, they increased the amount of meters that they could walk within six minutes by about 30 meters. And if you look up the minimally, the minimal clinically important difference for that particular test, it's 54 to 80 meters is the range. They say, hey, look, you got to be above this for it to actually count. And so the improvement that they saw was not uh, uh, clinically important because you just don't know, Hey, was this just due to like testing them again or like look at a slightly better day? Yeah. Or the ambient and temperature. Yeah, exactly. And finally they uh, tested aerobic threshold and there was a 1.27 milliliter improvement. And the minimal clinically important difference here is two milliliters. And so again, no real meaningful improvement. And so from all this, I'm like, I don't know that you can confidently say that resistance training actually improves metrics of cardiorespiratory fitness uh, based on the existing data. There's over 50 papers we just reviewed, you know, collectively, and not one of them showed like a pretty strong, reliable signal that I would hang my hat on. Uh, So you see a handful of papers that maybe show some not clinically important difference, but again, the magnitude of change is far inferior to what you would see with dedicated actual conditioning training. But one of the more interesting things I found here was that the, cl- the claim that endurance exercise can also drive hypertrophy. Um, there were a number of uh, studies 
predating about 2012 that showed that like if you did a bunch of cycling training, your quads would get bigger. And they actually compared it to like resistance training where people were doing, you know, leg extensions and leg press or whatever. And like, look, it's about the same. It's about the same. Uh, and so this, uh, one of the particular studies have been cited, you know, a couple hundred times in other endurance studies. And so this kind of actually made a little, made a little splash in the exercise science literature. However, you know, new data comes along and we got to update what, what, uh, what we were saying. So a uh, recent meta-analysis on the hypertrophy differences from resistance training with, re- uh, compared to aerobic training kind of challenged this notion that, Hey, the hypertrophy benefits you can see from both are roughly the same. So muscle hypertrophy in these studies was directly measured using ultrasound, MRI, CT, or biopsy. All the studies lasted at least four weeks, and in none of the studies were the folks in an energy deficit. Although, interestingly, after saying that, they were like, yeah, but two studies did show some weight loss. It was like, well, that's an energy deficit, but uh, (laughs) moving along. 22 studies here, 509 participants. The average duration of the the training program was 18 weeks, and they typically trained three times per week. It included men and women in this meta-analysis, and they ranged from age 20 all the way up into the late 70s. The results, these were reported in effect sizes, and that tells you the strength uh, of the finding. So uh, the higher the number is, the bigger the effect size, and the more confident you can be that, hey, this is a real difference rather than just being statistically significant you want to know like well like is it really statistically significant like something i should care about or is it just like a number difference that we found um if it's negative a negative number that means the outcome is actually lower or worse if it's a positive number the outcome is better or higher and again larger numbers equal a bigger effect so with respect to hypertrophy improvements resistance trained uh, individuals compared to aerobic training individuals. The uh, hypertrophy was much greater in the resistance training individuals and had an effect size of 0.66, which is large. Okay. Uh, they also checked uh, like, hey, but what? maybe there's like a fiber type difference. Does endurance training cause type one or slow twitch muscle fibers to hypertrophy more than resistance training? Does resistance training cause predominantly type two muscle fiber hypertrophy. Well, for type one muscle fibers, these are traditionally slow twitch muscle fibers. The resistance training uh, effect size was far greater than the aerobic training and the effect size overall when you compare the two was 0.99, which is very large. For type two muscle fiber cross-sectional area, again, the effect size favored resistance training and the total effect size was 1.44, which is very large. And so under no circumstance, is aerobic training producing the same amount of hypertrophy gains as resistance training? I think that we, we are people who are generally averse to make, you know, appealing to quote unquote common sense, but this is kind of one of those things. But even if we wanted to f- frame it through the lens of our discussion so far, you know, aerobic activity is not limited by the kind of things that increasing your muscle cross-sectional area will tend to improve um, in terms of like maximal force output, right? Whereas resistance exercise does demand, you know, higher and higher force outputs, which can be facilitated by increasing your muscle cross-sectional area by adding more of these sarcomeres and things like that. Whereas aerobic training, it's more about how many mitochondria you got in there? How good are they at doing this job? How good is your heart at getting oxygen down to them? So the limiters, again, kind of inform the uh, expected adaptations that we would see. Yeah. The last thing I kind of explored here was, well, what about the effect of endurance training on strength? Maybe there's some relationship there. And actually, I would expect that if you, you know, took an untrained individual or insufficiently active individual and you expose them to endurance training and then you measure their strength before and after, hey, there'd probably be an improvement. There's just not a lot of data here, though, 
Uh, so this one particular study, um, all these folks were over the age of 70. So you'd expect them to, you know, if anybody's going to benefit in strength <laughs> with endurance training, it's going to be folks who are older, untrained, previously uh, insufficiently active. Though they were all over the age of 70, 32 women, 10 men, uh, they resistance trained, uh, and the resistance training group increased their one RM leg press by 15%, their bench press by 25% and their row by 30%. Whereas the endurance training group showed no improvement in strength. Uh, there was another longer term study, uh, where they compared the strength levels, the grip strength, the knee extension strength, one RM, um, in folks who were sedentary or folks who are active. And these were, again, in older individuals. Um, so they had three age groups. Uh, one was a, was a younger group, sort of reference, age 20 to 39. One was middle-aged, 40 to 64. And the older group was 65 to 86. Uh, and so, again, the 1RM in the active endurance group was far higher than the sedentary group who was not otherwise resistance training, which again is common sense, duh, you're more active. So that does kind of support their relationship. But when you compare the effect of resistance training to endurance training on strength, while there's no real data here, just doing that in isolation, I would be very comfortable in saying that strength training is going to increase strength far more than endurance training. Yes. And also shocker, shocker that we still recommend that everybody strength train, including those who are not sufficiently active and older individuals, uh, in addition to the conditioning, in case people were concerned that with this conditioning series that we're, you know, turning everything upside down, you still should do both. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But overall, there's just not really much data here. Uh, we'll talk about combining the two where far more data actually exists and the interference effect uh, and the impact of strength, hypertrophy, and other outcomes on the next episode. But yeah, just not a lot of data just explicitly looking at the strength changes with endurance training in isolation. Okay. We're going to wrap this up. Take home message. Training adaptations are mode specific with some overlap between endurance training and resistance training. This is particularly true in untrained individuals, but in any case, different pathways from different physiological constraints drive primarily different adaptations. Of course, there is some crossover. Resistance training may augment those with a low VO2 max, especially if taken near failure with a high number of reps per set, but likely not enough to sort of meet that cardiorespiratory fitness sort of minimum that we would prefer. And again, it pales in comparison to endurance training. Endurance training may augment hypertrophy and maybe even strength uh, and things like training volume tolerance in resistance training. But again, resistance training is better at it. Given how important cardiorespiratory fitness is to health trajectory, we think it should be included in all exercise programs. From a health perspective, there's clear evidence that improving exercise tolerance to at least eight metabolic equivalents, it provides a substantial reduction in the risk of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease with further benefits beyond this threshold as well. Moreover, impl implementing aerobic endurance exercise appears to improve a large number of health conditions in a dose-dependent manner. From a performance perspective, Increasing cardiorespiratory fitness likely produces greater work capacity, training tolerance, as well as aerobic performance itself. So I wouldn't negate that either. Austin, any additional take-home messages? Yeah, I think the things that were important enough, I tried to repeat 
uh, over and over again throughout. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. All right. Well, in next week's episode, we're going to talk about combining conditioning exercise with resistance training and everyone's favorite topic, the interference effect. Will adding cardio to your lifting program kill your gains? Make sure you tune in next week to find out. But before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and help in fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.